So last week, we started looking at the epistle of 1 Peter, brilliant, brilliant epistle, um, super love it. Uh, we looked at a little term, uh, elect exiles. So I have a question for us this morning, just to think about for a second. If you look at your whole life, like what do you want? What's the deep desires of your heart? Is it the 1980s sitcom Cheers that had the theme song? You wanna go where everybody knows your name. And the second part is also very important and they're always glad you came. <laughs> Just because someone knows your name doesn't mean they're glad, you're glad, they're glad you came, right? Oh, great, Matt's here. Is that what our hearts want, like a place of belonging, a place of knowing, a place of loving? Is that the desire of the heart? Is that why that sitcom was so popular? It kind of hit on that thing. It's possible. So last week, we looked at the word election. And it was kind of academic and maybe uh, theological, and I did that on purpose for a couple reasons. I think it's important for us to know these terms, but also it allows you to know this is where we stand theologically at Edgewater. And I want you to know that as quick as you can so that you're not like, you believe what? I've been here five years, I've wasted five years, I'm out. I want you to know that as quick as possible so you can know, yeah, this is a place where theologically it's aligned with what I believe as well. So if you weren't here last week, you might wanna just pick that up so that you know this is what we believe on a very important topic called election, how you and I get saved. So we kind of walk through some pictures of what it means to be elect. But there's a second word in that. There was elect exiles. So today's gonna be less academic and more feeling. Because exile is a feeling that we have. And it's a theme of Peter, brilliant theme of Peter. So he begins with it, verses one and two of chapter one, and then he ends with it. So if you look at the end of 1 Peter, it's chapter five, verse 13. We also have a slide for it. He says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who likewise is chosen, sends you greetings. If you're a Bible person, Babylon is the ultimate exile. So in the Old Testament, Babylon is where the people of God go when they're exiled. And it is the ultimate exile. But then right after he says Babylon, this ultimate exile in the Old Testament, he says, hey, but likewise is chosen. So he is, he is using biblical theology to say the same thing he said in chapter one. Then you go to chapter two. So verse four. As you come to him, 
a living stone rejected by men, exiles, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So it's a theme. In, in, in verse 11, he's like, hey, because of this feeling that can come into you, look out. Don't numb this feeling. Don't numb it. Know about it. Know your exile, but don't use the wrong things to try to compensate. Don't go to sex, drugs, and rock and roll because you feel this exile. And I think today, it's even worse. We have all kinds of ways to numb like the feelings of exile that you should think about and meditate on and allow it to move you in a direction. But now we have two big things, acquisition and entertainment. Like, can we acquire things like no other generation has? Yeah, on Amazon, they have a little button. It's called buy it now, right? You don't even have to fill in anything. Just click the button, two days later, it's at your door. Like, it's incredible what we can acquire. So we can get into this kind of thing where we just acquire and acquire and acquire trinkets to try to numb that feeling of exile and desperation or entertainment. I mean, we, we are entertained to death. We wake up to our little screen, check whatever. We often work on a middle-sized screen and then we go to bed to a giant screen. It's insane how we can just medicate and numb these really important things that are themes in the Bible that if you allow them for a moment to just kind of move you, you might find some really good answers to how to live life better, right? So we, I think, because we're exiles, we're bored. We're just bored people. And because we're bored people, we're always wanting something amazing to happen, aren't we? Don't we like read the news and don't we like talk to people because we're just waiting for a glimpse of something amazing. So our Instagram feeds or if you're young, TikTok stuff, you're waiting for that awesomeness to happen. Like, oh, there was awesome. You know what I call that awesomeness? News from home. It's really news from home because we know we're designed for something better than what we're experiencing right now. And we're looking for just a glimmer, a little bit of a, uh, a letter, a little bit of a glimpse of home, of something good, of something amazing. That's what we're all waiting for because we're in exile, right? So Peter begins to hit on that and he's gonna, the next subject we'll do next week is his way of saying, here's how you deal with this. But for today, I just wanna figure out what does Peter mean when he says exile? Elect, we kind of looked at that. We, we took that up, beat it up, I said, here's where I think about election. So now the second word, exile. What does Peter mean when he calls you and me elect exiles? Um, there's two ways you can do the Bible. I think both of them are appropriate. Number one is you look at a word, exile. You find out what it was in the Greek language. And then you take that Greek word and you go back to the time that the author was writing and you say, what did the Greek people think about that word in 50 AD? And that is a legitimate way to do the Bible. So you look at other uh, stuff that we have from the second century, first century, how they use that word, and people do that all the time. So that's the first way. 
You go to the culture in which the word was used. Secondly is this. You look at how the Bible used that same word. That's my preference. So I am under the firm conviction that the authors of scripture were bathed in the vocabulary of scripture. We do it today as Christians, right? We'll say, hey bro, you're acting worldly. What does that mean? Does anyone use that word worldly anymore? It's probably gone a little bit. Or, hey, I don't feel called to this. That's a biblical, we're going back. Or, you're in the flesh. Those are all like biblical terms that have made their way into our vocabulary that if you didn't have the Bible or any kind of Bible, you'd be like, what are you talking about, man? And the authors of scripture, they use terms that are bathed in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is the thesaurus or the dictionary for the New Testament terms in my humble estimation. So when Peter uses the word exile, how's he using it? I think he's using it because of the Old Testament. And the Bible begins with exile. The Bible begins with God creating this brilliant home for humans. The humans trash the joint and they're kicked out, right? That's how the Bible opens. And they are exiled, the Bible tells us, east of Eden. East in the Bible is always bad. So they go to a bad spot. And for the rest of the Bible, people are trying to figure out how to get back to Eden because we don't wanna be in exile, okay? So if we're gonna find out what exile means, I think we gotta look at Genesis. So if you have your Bible, we're gonna look at another picture like we did last week. We looked at pictures of salvation. We're gonna look at a picture of exile because maybe it will help explain the feelings that we have today in the world that we live in because we all live in exile, all right? So Genesis chapter three. We'll pick up the story for the sake of time after they've committed treason against the owner of the property and then it's the fallout from their bad decision. So Genesis chapter three, verse nine. But Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he, this is Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, God, said, who told you that you were naked? You can so like geek out on this little text right here. It's unbelievable. The man says, I know I was naked, so I hid. What's he doing to himself? He's exiling himself. I had this feeling that, that, that I was naked and this shame from it, and I knew you were around, so I went and I hid myself from you. Right? So many people feel this and they hide from God. They can't take the gaze of God because they know they've done something they should not, and so they hide, right? When you had little kids, um, and they did something you told them not to do, what would your little kids go do? They'd run and hide behind like a couch or something, right? It's the same feeling, like get exile yourself. And they feel this shame because they're naked. Like everyone feels a shame if you're naked. The only class of humans that don't are little babies, 
right? Babies, we all have baby pictures of our babies in our diapers, in their diapers, excuse me. And then at some point, they learn to take off their diaper, which is a really fun stage, all right? My kids, my boys, keeping clothing on little boys is like trying to baptize a cat. I could track my children, my boys, based on their clothing, like shorts, socks, that, you know, just track them around my property. They're shame. And this is bigger than like, oh my goodness, I don't have clothes on. It's bigger. Because you gotta go back to chapter two where it says this, when Adam and Eve get married, it says they're naked and unashamed. They were open with each other. They were honest with each other. There was no cloaking. There was no hiding. There was no shame. They were 100% honest with each other. There was that kind of relationship, right? They were known and they were loved. They were known and loved. And this thing that they had in chapter two all of a sudden gets fractured and doesn't work as well. It's why all of us have this fear and maybe you've had this nightmare when you're little. The nightmare of showing up to school like in your underwear. You get on the bus and you're like, why, why didn't I wear my clothes? What in the world's going on, right? Or you're in your pajamas or somehow you're ill-equipped for that time, right? Or you get invited to a pool party and you think it's a swimming pool party and so you show up in your swim trunks and everyone else is in formal attire. How do you feel? And you're like, hey, no problem, man. The whole pool's for myself. No way. You feel out of place. It's all this. All this ideas inside of here, this nakedness. So now, because of this nakedness, all of us choreograph a life because we wanna put forth the right kind of life that other people can see, the right kind, of, right kind of life that we want people to know. And we never want people to know more about us than we know about them, right? Like dating, when you date, there's like steps, right? You date for a while, you let them in a little bit, you date for a while, you, the other person lets you in, and you kind of take these micro steps forward, and no one wants to jump out in front because then you can be naked and ashamed. Has it ever happened? I'll, I'll, I'll give you one story what happened to me. My wife, we dated for four months. I was head over heels for her. I knew I had outpunted my coverage. Um, I'm in the minors, she's in the majors, but I'm trying to play the game that I'm still a catch, right? So it's that whole kind of weird dating thing. Uh, 21st birthday, I make uh, reservations at the Firefly in Ashland. Back in, back in the day, it was the restaurant to go to. So we head over to the Firefly. Um, we order our food. The reason why the restaurant was called the Firefly because that was the size of the food you got. It's expensive, but small. So I got like parsley and a crinkly cut organic fava bean for like 50 bucks. I'm like, wow. So we had a lot of time to talk because you didn't eat much. You over quickly. So Charity, that time we're just hanging out. She says, well, where do you see our relationship going? Man, that is a tough question. Ask the question. That way you don't have to answer it. So I decided, okay, I'm putting all my cards on the table. I'm going to be naked in this moment. So I said, well, I see us getting married. And my, I'll call her my friend Charity, looked up from her fava bead and said, oh, I don't know about that. I was like, ow! Oh, we split the check that night. Now, I'm not paying for that beat town. You can pay for yourself, woman. 
What happened in that moment? I was more naked than her. I got exposed, right? And, and in that moment, it was very like awkward and uh-oh, what does this mean? And a lot of like self-reflection because in exile, listen to me very carefully. In exile, unlike chapter two, in exile, you can either be loved or known, but not both. And that's the war we fight now with relationships. You're either gonna be known or you're gonna be loved, but not both. And so all of us feel that tension. How much information do I let them know? Because if I let them know too much about me, they're not gonna love me. The love will change. So we're always worried about the clothing and this kind of image that we're putting out to people, right? So let me ask, is there anybody that you are 100% honest with? Anybody? Are you 100% honest with your spouse? Or are there certain ideas or dreams or desires or things that come into your head or maybe stuff that you've done that even to this day that you don't tell your wife or don't tell your husband? My guess is, even to our closest companion, we still hide things. Nah, she couldn't handle that. Nah, he wouldn't approve of that. No, if I told him that, her that, I don't know, I don't know what would happen. So we know in exile, we have a choice. You can either be loved or known, but not both. So we gotta be very careful. Gotta be very careful. And so we hide things and we clothe things. And that's in all of us because we want to be known and we want to be loved. We want both of those. But we find that's very, very, very difficult. And I think it's got worse in America now because we have this, you guys know what cancel culture is? One mistake on a social media post or whatever, you get canceled, right? And it can be media darlings. Like the media loves this person until they find out something that they did 20 years ago and they're like, cancel him, right? Just ask Jimmy Kimmel. Media darling, leftist darling, right? And what are they doing right now? They're canceling him this last week because of something he did in 1996. Like it's insane. That's our culture now. Because at the core, at the root of it in exile, you're gonna either be loved or known, but it won't be both. And so that is always this kind of tension of, ah, ah. So what do Adam and Eve do? In this moment, what do they do? Verse nine. Excuse me. Verse seven. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves. By the way, fig leaves are like poison oak, I've been told. I don't know that personally, but I've been told fig leaves are like poison oak. And they made themselves loincloths. Oh, what an awesome moment that must have been. Goodness, why couldn't we have chosen something else? Right, so what are they doing? They're trying to fix themselves up. They're trying to make themselves presentable. They're trying to look decent. They're trying to, right, this, we would call this religion in a way. It's a way of, hey, I know I blew it. I know we shouldn't have done that. I know we shouldn't have eaten that. But you know what? We're gonna make ourselves a little bit more presentable. We're gonna tweak ourselves a little bit. We're gonna make ourselves look better. We're gonna try, look it. We're gonna try to make our way back into Eden. It's the first religion. The, the religion of leaf sowers. I think this religion still exists out in Tequilma somewhere. Um, possibly. So religion's kind of lost its sway as a term 
you could just replace religion with self-help. So the last 40 years, it's self-help. It's, hey, just improve yourself. We know we're in exile. We know we're outside. We know we can't be both loved and known. So make yourself a little bit better. Tweak yourself. Figure out how to move back into Eden, step by step by step. And so we do self-help over and over and over again. Or how about just, they, they fashion clothes. Like, why do we choose the clothes? Have you ever thought about this? Why do we choose the clothes that we wear? Why do we choose the fashions that we wear? Why do we wear the clothes that we like to wear? Isn't it in a way kind of Saul's armor? Like we saw somebody that we admired or we saw a picture of something that we really liked and we thought, if I wear that, that will make me more presentable, right? Don't we choose clothing based on that? It kind of makes me look better. It's somebody I admire. So I just read this. I never knew this. John Wayne. Who knows John Wayne? See, this is the 730 is going to know John Wayne. The Duke. <clears throat> you guys are smart. You get up early. So John Wayne made this movie called Red River. And in the movie, when he was getting ready, they buckled his belt, but they buckled it, and he didn't notice it, over to the side instead of in the center. His belt was buckled, and it was in this really prominent shot, his buckles on the side. Guess what half of America did the following week? They buckled their belts on the side, man. The Duke does it. We're doing it. Why? Because you're getting a little bit of his glory, right? By, by buckling. Hey, look, man. I'm like the Duke. You're cloaking yourself. You're covering yourself. You're grabbing some of his glory because you know you need it. Or when you go to a store and you try on clothing, the, the clerk or maybe your spouse or your, someone will say, oh, that's you. But what do they mean by that? Like, this, this is me? This, what do they mean in that moment? Like, it's you. How about in 10 years, is it still me? Those black denim baggy pants, are they still me? Because no one else is wearing them. What happened, right? What happened? Why, why would we even say that? It's strange. How about your wife or daughter? Maybe um, they, have a, they have Mount Everest of clothing, right? But they'll say in the morning, I have nothing to... Where, right? Maybe it happened this morning. What does that mean? Yes, you do. What happened to all those clothing, all that stuff? That at one point, a clerk was saying, it's you. What's happened? You've emptied that clothing of its temporary value. That's what you've done. You've sucked it dry, right? Five years ago or five months ago or five days ago, it's lost its glory. It's lost its ability. It's been sucked dry. So I'm reading this book right now. It's fascinating. It's Walker Piercy, um, and it's called The, the uh, Lost Cosmos, The Last Self-Help Book, and he has this quote. I don't have it written down, but it's really good. So this is what he says. The self in the 20th century is a voracious knot. <laughs> which expands like the feeding vacuole of an amoeba seeking to nourish and inform its own nothingness by ingesting new objects in the world. But, like a vacuole, only succeeds in emptying them out. I just said, man, that is us today. We buy new clothing because we think that new clothing will make us happy, but instead we just empty those clothes and then they're just 
Now I have nothing to wear. Why? Because I emptied of, of its value. It's gone now. We get a new trinket, and it's fun for a little while, but then we just suck all the life out of it, and then it's empty. I don't really like it anymore. Why? Because we emptied it of its value. That's what we are. We're knots, just feeding on something to try to make us feel that we're not in exile anymore, that we've got home somehow, that we've got news from a good land, all right? So all of us do this. All of us have this exile mentality, and all of us are like amoebas trying to like glom onto something, John Wayne or clothing or acquisition or something to fill that void. But we're still inadequate and we hide. And we're trying to do it for ourselves, but we can't because we all need this. We all need someone else to actually validate us. Do you know that? Like, have you ever graded your own paper? Maybe it was in high school or something, or I don't think they do it in college, but have you ever graded your own paper? Like you could give yourself an A and be like, I am a genius. Does that mean anything? Right, it's the same writing on the paper. It means nothing, why? Because you did it for yourself. You need somebody greater than you to say, you're a genius, that's an A. You need a professor or a mentor or somebody you respect, someone that you know loves you to say the same thing. Hey, that's an A paper. We need that. We need it. We have this like self-improvement mentality that we're always trying to get something that makes us happy. More likes, more TikToks, whatever it is. But they're, they're all fig leaves that eventually fade and break up. And then we're left naked and ashamed again. And we like go from cycle to cycle to cycle to cycle. Why? Because we live in exile. That's why. We live in exile and nothing can do it for us. And the hardest is the people that think they succeed. The hardest people in the world to be around is a person that believes they've succeeded. You know what we call them? Legalistic Christians. Ever been around a legalistic Christian? They're the hardest people in the world to be around. I should know because I was one. So back in 1995, I thought I'd worked my way back into Eden. I'd made it, I had arrived, I kept the rules, I did it pretty well, I looked good, right? And I had this conversation one time with my roommates who I did not believe were doing Christianity like they should. And this one guy was like, Matt, what about God's grace? I said, you know what? You keep telling me about God's grace. I think you're a new ager. I don't know if you're saved. And I walked away. I did that to my roommate. Why? Because I was a pompous, graceless jerk. Because I believed by my own merits and my own fig leaf sowing, I had made my way back out of exile. And I just became impossible to be around. And then I believe this, on top of that, here's what I believe. I believe God was just waiting to punish sinners. Like he had a Rolodex of plagues. And if you sinned or something, God was just like, yeah, bang. Blown tired because you lied. Cheat on a test, yeah, you've got your spleen coming out, buddy. Like I was just waiting for God to get people that I believe was sinners. Not me though, because I'd made it back to Eden. I was an impossible person to be around. Is waiting, and then I believe this, and maybe you do too, that God could not stand sinners, that a sinner could not be in God's presence. Do you believe sinners cannot believe in, be in God's presence? Man, I was raised with that. So you better figure out, you better confess all your sins, you better get yourself straightened up, and then if you got yourself all straightened up and your fig leaves are just right, maybe then God will be like, okay, you can come into my presence. 
Like I was just, God cannot tolerate sin. It cannot be in his presence. And that was like a triple package of disaster for me. And you know what changed me? When I started reading the Bible. When I started reading Genesis chapter three. How does God deal with the very first sinners? They committed treason against him. They trashed his good paradise. They broke the system God had. How does God treat the very first terrible, bad sinners in exile? Well, number one, verse eight says, he comes to them. God doesn't wait for them to come to him. They're hiding. God goes after them. Verse nine, he calls to them. Hey, where are you guys? He calls to them. The very first sinners, God comes to them. He calls to them. Can the thrice holy God Creator and sustainer of the universe, can the thrice holy God, can he have sinners in his presence? Genesis chapter three. Yeah. Right, that was an eye-opener for me. Yeah, he can. Oh my goodness. Because from this point on, Genesis three to Revelation chapter 20, God does his greatest work, which is redemption. Redeeming exiles, redeeming sinners, Meeting the broken, meeting the crushed, that's what he does. It's why God exiles himself from heaven and comes down and lives here. And he leaves the 99 and who does he go after? The one really bad sinner. It's why when Jesus gives this parable of the prodigal son, the father who is a representation of the heavenly father, when he sees the stinking sinner a long way off, what does he do? Runs after him. Runs after him. Here's the good news. If you run to God, he will not be mad at you. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you're the prodigal son, if you're Adam and Eve, if you run to God, he will not be mad at you, okay? And then what does he do? He says, where are you? Now, did God not know where they were at? Was God like, first game of hide and go seek, and you guys are really good at this? No. It's like playing hide and go seek with Elijah when he was three. He would do this. He would throw a blanket over himself in the middle, middle of our living room and tell his mom, don't tell dad where I'm at. Giggling the whole time underneath a blanket. Dad will never find me here. Like I would just go and like read a book and then come, hey buddy, I found you. Took you a long time, dad. Yeah, I did. Is that it? First game of hide and go seek? No. It's a much deeper question. It's God saying, where are you? Right? Have you ever asked that of somebody? You're not asking like physically, where are you at? Bro, where are you at? But what God is gonna do here is he's gonna counsel these guys. This is the first counseling session and it's brilliant. And parents, by the way, God asks questions. He doesn't lecture. But God begins with questions because questions invite conversation. Lectures invite drool and falling asleep. So God... He asks really good questions. And Adam answers. I love his answer. He's just like, I am a blow-it case. I heard the sound of you. I was afraid because I'm naked and I hid myself. He talks about how he feels emotionally. I was afraid. 
He talks about his identity now as a naked person. And he talks about his action hiding. What does God zero in on? Verse 11, who told you you were naked? Who gave you this information? That's an identity statement. Who told you you're a hairless, naked ape? Who told you that? Where did you get this new information from? Who's telling you this? When I do counseling and talk with people, I try to ask good questions, and I always listen for identity statements. Who told you that? Because we do have a serpent who wants to peg us and identify us as something. And for men, most likely with men, it's some kind of, hey, you're incompetent. You're worthless. You're a failure because men our deep need is to be respected. So what the enemy comes and does is he tries to early on with a teacher or maybe a whisper into your head or maybe a hurt done to you, you are an incompetent fool. And that becomes your identity statement. And I'll say, who, who told you that? When I was in third grade, well, my dad, well, who told you that? Have you been listening to the serpent? And with women, it's not usually that because women are much more in tune with, with relationship. So with women, it's usually something about relationship. You'll always be alone. Even if you get married, you're still gonna be alone in your marriage or you'll never get married. You're a fat, worthless pig. Those kind of things. You're not pure. No one will ever choose you now. That's the whisper of the snake that causes, causes you and me to hide in shame and exile. That's what is being said right here. So then we put all this kind of pressure on ourselves and we try to sew together new fig leaves and try to, hey, act, uh, acquire something or, or wear these kind of clothes or have this many likes on TikTok, whatever it is, to make us feel like, oh, we're in. We're back in Eden. But it's all temporary because it always fades. So look what God does. Verse 21. And Yahweh God made for Adam and Eve, his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. God clothes them. God clothes them. This is the gospel. You're naked and you're shame. I'll take care of it. I will clothe that. I'll take it away from you. It's a theme of the Bible. You just read the Bible. Ezekiel 16, when God talks about Israel, he says, you were like two children, two babies that were cast out along the side of the road, aborted. That's how you did abortion back then. If you didn't want a baby, once it was born, you'd leave it by the side of the road and the animals would eat it. And so there's these two babies by the side of the road, Ezekiel 16. Yahweh God sees them, he grabs them, he washes them, and he clothes them and raises them as his own. It's all cover you. It's the story of Hosea. One of my favorite books in the Bible, Hosea, a great prophet of God, is told, hey, go marry a prostitute. Man, that's a tough one. I gotta take her home and introduce her to my mom. What's she gonna wear? This is awkward, God. I want you to do it. And Gomer ends up leaving Hosea. 
going out and doing what prostitutes do. do. And somehow she gets herself in trouble. She ends up mixed up with the wrong crowd, in drugs, in debt, and so they grab her and they start to sell her. But that's not enough. Eventually, they can't sell her anymore, so they decide she's gonna be sold as a slave and they put her on the auction block. And God tells Hosea, your wife is being auctioned off today. So Hosea gets all of his cash that he has and he goes running down there and when he arrives, there's Hosea, there's Gomer, stripped naked on the auction block being sold to the highest bidder. 10 shekels, 11 shekels. And then all of a sudden, Gomer hears a voice she recognizes. It's her husband, Hosea, 15 shekels. And the owner says, I've had to feed her for the last four months. Okay, 15 shekels and nine bushels of barley. Apparently she ate like a horse. <laughs> Sold. And Gomer must have walked off of there wondering, what does this mean? Am I his slave now? And read verse three of chapter three of Hosea. Because Hosea says to Gomer, from now on, you're my wife and you're exclusively for me and I am yours. He's covenanting her, with her again. We're 100% back and he clothes her and restores her position as his wife. And God says, that's what I do for my people. Even though they run off, even though they sin, even though they betray me, I buy them back, not as a slave, I buy them back as my sons and my daughters. I buy them back. It's the New Testament. Right? Jesus is exiled from humanity on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth. No home, right? And he's stripped naked. They gamble for his clothes at the foot of the cross. Why? So that you and I never have to be that way. So you and I never have to be homeless. So you and I never have to be exiled. It's the story of the Bible. It's so that you and I can be brought back in. Like here's my, one of my favorite verses. It's Colossians 3.3 3, and it says this. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And it's this little phrase. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That was transforming, that little term, Christ who is your life, transformed my life. Because for me, my life was a lot of things, a lot of fig, fig leaves, like, well, my life will be fill in the blank. And like fig leaves, it would last a little while, then it would fade and crumble and be gone, and I have to find something new. It was this constant pursuit. And Edgewater became part of that. I've told people for the first five years at Edgewater, I preached this way. I preached a sermon so that you would like me and think I was smart. Like me, I'm smart. That was the first five years of Edgewater. And if you didn't like me, it ruined my week. If I didn't get enough accolades, didn't like get enough sermon, kind of, ah, oh, that was so great today, it would ruin my week. And it was miserable, just up and down, up and down, up and down, based on fig leaves. That's not my life. My life is not... If you like my sermon, you come back next week. I hope you do, but that's not my life. My life is hidden Christ. In Christ who is my life. When he appears, I'll appear with him in glory. That's my life. 
My future destination is to leave exile and be taken back to a new Eden called New Jerusalem where I will rule and reign with him forever. That's my life. Everything else is just, okay, that's great. If it happens, great. If it doesn't, that's not my life. That's what's supposed to happen to us. See, yeah, we're exiles, but we're wanted exiles. We're chosen exiles. We're elect exiles. Yes, we're not where we're supposed to be. Yes, we're suspended somewhere we're not, but we're wanted, okay? That election is so important. You're wanted. And as believers, here's the thing about this world. Right now, we can really feel the tension of the world, right? Where we don't fit. You should be happy you don't fit in this world. Do you really wanna fit in this world? It's insane to me. You shouldn't fit because you're a wanted exile and you're headed to your real spot. You're headed to where you exist without the shame, without the nakedness. You're headed to the spot where you can be both loved and known. The one that knows you the best, loved you the most, when you were your worst. That's the gospel. That's what we live on. And when you understand that, when that actually sinks into your heart, everything becomes fig leaves and you no longer put any pressure on it. It'd be great if people love me. It'd be great if this sermon is awesome. If it's not, it's not my life. Jesus is my life and I'm hid in him and everything that matters will come true because of him and that's what I live on. So we get to go to the table and I want you to think as we go to the table this morning, what kind of fig leaves have you been making your life about? How's that working for you? How's that working for you? Because it won't. It'll last a little while and then the fig leaf will fade and break and be gone. You and I have to put our trust and dependence in the fig leaves that never fail. The one that says, Hebrews 4 verse 12, all things are naked and open to me. And, and verse 16 says, and you can still come boldly before the throne room of grace. The one that knows you the best still says, you can come and receive rest. You can come and receive rest. Ask yourself, why am I getting into heaven? Why is my eternal destiny secure? Is it because you're fixing yourself up because something you did? Or is it because of Jesus? In the Old Testament, there's these sacrifices over and over and over. So if you sinned and you blew it, you'd take a lamb and you'd walk with your lamb to the temple. And then what would happen in the temple? Would they ask you questions? What'd you sin? What'd you do wrong? Did you repent good enough? Did they, would they ask that? No, guess what they do? They'd look at the lamb. If the lamb was without blemish, you were good. Guess what happens today? when you and I sin. You and I are not inspected. Jesus, the perfect lamb, is inspected. And every time you and I are allowed in to the throne room of grace, you can run to God and he won't be mad at you. This whole idea that's in us that God can't tolerate sinners in his presence is ridiculous. Satan's in his presence, read Job chapter one. Isaiah in God's presence says, I am a really terrible dude and he's in God's presence. It's, it's ridiculous. You and I get in because of the lamb. So Jesus today, 
We're exiles, but we're wanted. We have this tension in us created by the culture we live in, created by the expectations of other people. We're always trying to put a facade on, but we do not have to do that with you. All things are naked and open before you. And we can still come boldly before your throne room of grace and obtain help in our time of need. We're wanted exiles. I pray for myself this day. I pray that I'd walk out this exile, this sojourn well. I pray that I would not put pressure on this world, on this culture, on acquisition, on entertainment to fulfill something that only you can. I pray that when we eat of you, you would be the bread of life. And we would know our lives are hid in you. And that you are our life. And everything that matters, everything that's eternal, is secure in you. That you are our Passover lamb that you cover us and you clothe us and you make us presentable. May we eat of you. Let's eat of that. And you cleanse us. you saved us to transform us to make us the kind of people that you want to spend eternity with forgive us for numbing our sojourn for numbing our exile with news feeds with entertainment, with acquisition, with sin. And so today, Lord, may we set aside every weight and every sin that besets us. And may we run with endurance this week before us, keeping our eyes upon you, the author and finisher drink together. So go with us, Jesus. Be with us. Correct us. Sustain us. May our hearts rejoice in the good news that you have purchased us, redeemed us, clothed us, and you're going to keep us. And I ask this in your name.